1 Corinthians chapter 12. One could argue that since chapter 8, Paul has been dealing with matters dealing or relating to public worship. In chapters 8, 9, and 10, Paul makes a case that they are not to go to pagan temples, even if it is just to eat. In chapters 11 through 14, Paul deals with three abuses that have crept into the Corinthian public worship. Uh, We've looked at the first two. The first one was women uh, participating in public worship, praying and prophesying, which is fine, but doing so while acting like men. That is, with their heads uncovered, going contrary to the cultural norms of their society, which was their intent all along. Uh, The Corinthians were trying to show that gender didn't matter to believers. Uh, They were like the angels, and Paul seeks to correct that. Secondly, we saw last week that socioeconomic differences were creating divisions at the Lord's table. That is, there was a communal meal being a part of their worship. The haves were participating, but the have-nots were sort of left outside and then were sort of called in to have communion or the Lord's Supper with everyone else. And, and Paul said such actions constituted a sin against the body and the blood of the Lord and that they did not recognize the body of the Lord. I think when people think about, well, how would you abuse communion? They think of somehow taking the elements and using it for some satanic ritual. You know, you see in these movies, you know, someone got some consecrated host and and took it off to do some devious thing with it. Uh, For Paul, you want to do something satanic? Have the Lord's Supper, remembering the death of the Lord, proclaiming the death of the Lord, while while denying the reality that his death makes us one in Christ. That, to Paul, is what is wrong. And it is so wrong, in fact, that their failures in this area have led to people getting weak, getting sick, and some, in fact, have even died. Because they have failed to recognize the Lord's body. We are the body of Christ. Today we come to the matter that they wrote Paul about. And you notice at the beginning of chapter 12 we see the words now about. And it's sort of a marker. This is something in their letter to Paul that they had written about. I've mentioned before that chapters 12, 13, and 14 follow the ABA pattern. That is, it starts out with a general statement, then B is theological support, and then the A again is a much more specific and detailed response to the issue that is being discussed. This is important and helpful for us because if all we had was chapter 12, if this was the only part of 1 Corinthians that had survived, we might think that the issue was spiritual gifts. We might also think that they were asking Paul about the matter and and he's giving them some instruction, some advice. But with chapter 14, since we have chapter 14, we see that Paul is not instructing them, he is not informing them, he is correcting them. I think this is really important particularly in chapter 12, that it is not instructional or or informational by nature, but corrective. Paul is trying to correct what they're doing that is wrong. His response takes exception to their view of things. He's not simply informing them. He's saying, listen, guys, you got it wrong. You need to correct things. In chapter 14, we have specific correctives, which Paul is able to give because of the material in chapters 12 and 13. And so... It seems a little strange, but I want to sort of jump ahead to chapter 14 because it will help us as we study chapter 12. There are two sections in chapter 14, two basic principles. Verses 1 through 25, Paul deals with speaking in tongues, 
that is unintelligible speech, and prophesying, that is intelligible speech. And he makes the point that in public worship, we need to understand what's going on. There needs to be a sense of intelligibility. That if people are, are doing stuff and you don't understand, then what's the point? Public worship requires understanding. And then in verses 25 through 40, uh, Paul gives specific guidelines for public worship. And in this section, the principle is there needs to be order in worship. So there needs to be intelligibility or understanding. There needs to be order in public worship. The two issues become clear that the problem involves public worship. And secondly, these correctives are aimed at one specific aspect. I mean, there are other things that come up, and that is the abuse of speaking in tongues in public worship. Their abuse was seen in the fact, well, it was their emphasis, but no one understood what was going on because they were speaking gibberish. And secondly, it was disrupting the service. There was no order. There was sort of chaos because anyone would speak up at any time he or she felt like it. 12 and 13 lead up to the material in chapter 14. Chapter 12 begins in the first three verses by Paul setting down the theological standard. This is the standard by which we are to measure one's belief or one's theology, particularly in the area of spiritual gifts, which we will get to in a bit. I do believe it is the whole matter of spirituality that is the difference between Paul and the Corinthians. I've mentioned to you before, but verse number one of chapter 13, I think, is a key to understanding this. The Corinthians thought they were like angels. See, for them, resurrection did not compute. So for them, the resurrection of Jesus meant that the new life had already begun. And in this new life, there's no gender, male or female, so the women would come into church and act like men, and there's no need for sexual activity. And so Paul writes chapter 7 to meet that. And if you think about it, if you're like the angels, no gender, and the body's really not that important, by the way, in chapter 15 with resurrection, Paul will say the body's absolutely important, no body, no resurrection. The body has to be planted in order to be resurrected. But if, if you're like the angels, then shouldn't you talk like the angels? Shouldn't you speak what the angels speak? So Paul opens in chapter 13, if I speak in the tongues or languages of men and of angels. This is their problem. They see themselves as living an angelic existence. For Paul, life in the spirit doesn't mean you know, all this flash and saying we are living the life of angels. The life in the spirit means we live here, we live now. But with the spirit, we are able at the same time to be weak and strong. That is, we embrace our weakness, the emphasis in chapter one. But we also understand the power of the Holy Spirit. For the Corinthians, they only stood, understood the power. They didn't understand the weakness. And therefore, they had gone off track. Yes, there will come a time in the future when all things will be made right. And our life right now is contingent on that future life. But we're not there yet, Paul is trying to tell them. It has not yet been completed. 
present, in the present, here and now, we are to cultivate loving, responsible relationships in the body of Christ. And these are to be demonstrated in public worship. That is, in public worship, the relationships we have with one another are to be seen in a very visible way. Public worship is for mutual edification. We are here to build each other up. It isn't here for someone to be a star, for an individual to sort of shine and everyone say, oh, well, it was great to go to church today and see this or hear this or see this person. It is, in fact, to be for the congregation. The Corinthians, on the other hand, were very individualistic. And so for them, it was here. I'm going to church here. Listen to me as I speak in tongues and everyone pay attention to me. Paul's like, you people have got it wrong. And so this chapter today, chapter 12, begins the correction process when it comes to this matter. First of all, verses 1, 2, and 3. And and look, if you would, as I read it. Now about spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that when you were pagan, somehow or other, you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore, I tell you that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. You know, at first reading, this seems to be almost totally unrelated to what is being discussed. But Paul is setting the stage for what follows. And he begins with the now about. He is responding to what they have written. And he sets the theological standard. But there are three questions or three issues we have to deal with. What does Paul mean when he uses the word spiritual? It starts in the NIV now about spiritual gifts. It is at points like this, by the way, that the King James Version is extremely helpful. And I sort of long for the days when we could use the King James Version and people would understand what was going on. Uh, If you look at the King James Version, it has words in italics. And generally speaking for us, when words are in italics, we think that means they're to be emphasized. In the King James, the words in italics have been supplied by the translators. They're being very upfront about it. That is, we believe that this word will help you understand what was being said, but the word wasn't actually there. So Paul actually wrote in Greek to the Corinthians, now about the spirituals, spiritual plural, spiritual ones, it could be uh, neuter, or spiritual people, it could also be masculine. Now, the question is, does Paul mean spiritual people, or does he mean spiritual things, like spiritual gifts? Um, We actually don't know, if if we would be honest about it. Um, If he means spiritual people, and I actually think this is what he means, because the Corinthians see themselves as spiritual. They are the spiritual ones. And Paul says, okay, let's talk about those spiritual ones. If it means spiritual gifts, we see this also mentioned in the first verse of chapter 14. Um, and perhaps what we should do is saying it's either or, say that it's both and. That the spiritual people are the ones who have spiritual gifts. And Paul says, rather than dissecting, he just says, okay, about the spiritual ones. Let's talk about these things. 
I would have you noticed, by the way, that he uses the word brothers here again. He's very careful, even in, in the most difficult of situations in which the people are just sort of off in left field, to let them know, you are my brothers and sisters in Christ. He says, I do not want you to be ignorant. As we've seen before, when Paul says this, he isn't going to give new information. Okay? It's old information. But he is correcting a bad understanding of that old information. Second question, why does Paul bring up the issue of back when they were pagans? He begins to correct their ignorance by reminding them that, hey, you remember back when you guys were pagans? I'm not quite sure why Paul brings this up. Um, is he simply saying, well, now you're Christians, you used to be pagans and sort of contrasting their way of life. You know, in the past you were led, you were influenced by idols, now you are led, you are influenced by the Spirit. Or could it be that he is reminding them of something, and this goes back into history. In pagan worship in Paul's time, speaking in tongues was rather common. It was called inspired speech or ecstatic speech, where as they were worshiping the gods, someone would almost become possessed by a spirit and then would begin to speak, and it didn't make any sense. And it was like, oh, you know, they're, they're being inspired by the gods. And as Paul begins to deal with the issue of speaking in tongues, he's like, okay, remember the, the speaking in tongues back when you were pagans? That wasn't good stuff, was it? Because you were influenced, you were led by idols. Okay. So to speak in tongues in and of itself is not necessarily a good thing because you used to do it back when you were pagans. Now that you're doing it as Christians, you need, to, you need to be aware that there's a good kind and there's a bad kind. The third question, and this is probably the biggest one, is what is Paul talking about when he says that if somebody says, Jesus, be cursed? I mean, had this actually happened? And, and where did this happen? I mean, is it possible that somebody in public worship was speaking in tongues and then all of a sudden said, Jesus, be cursed? I think if that had happened, Paul would have blown a gasket. He would have said something is seriously wrong. I think he's talking about pagan worship. Because remember, they go to the pagan temples to eat. They're the restaurants of that time. And they're sitting there and they're eating. And then all of a sudden, this priest or priestess becomes possessed and begins to speak in tongues. And then out come the words, Jesus be cursed. Now, the Christians are thinking, hey, they're speaking in tongues. We do that at church. That's spiritual stuff. They must be spiritual. And Paul's, oh, wait a minute. Somebody who says, Jesus be cursed, that's not the Spirit of God. That is not the Spirit of God that is speaking. But perhaps even more difficult than that part of the equation is the second part when, no one, when he says, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. We live years, centuries after Paul. Many have confessed that Jesus is Lord in, the, in that time. Many of whom we have a really difficult time believing are truly Christians or that they really believe that Jesus is Lord. So what is Paul saying? If, if somebody says Jesus is Lord, oh, you must have the Spirit of God because 
Boy, the only way you could say that is if you had the Spirit of God. Now, I think the solution, if that's the right word, is to recognize the radical nature of the statement, Jesus is Lord. We hear it all the time, and so it doesn't seem that big of a deal. Jesus, the crucified one, is, by his resurrection, Lord of all the universe. The time Paul is writing, for a Jew to say Jesus is Lord was to say Jesus is God. And to the Jews, that would be blasphemy. And so for a Christian to stand up and say that would mean to take a stand. For a Gentile, it would mean Jesus is the true God. But what does it mean in our time? In our time, I think it means the same thing that it did back then. Absolute allegiance to Christ. Absolute obedience to Christ as God. I mentioned in Sunday school that we have in the 20th century a phenomenon uh, where people say, well, you know what? You can come to Jesus and ask him to forgive your sins and become your savior, but not your Lord. In other words, he can, you can ask him, please save me, but I'm not going to obey you. Okay. Uh, and then hopefully later on in their life, they say, oh, I guess I'm going to obey you. Now you're going to be my Lord. No. The Spirit of God says, Jesus is Lord. Jesus, the crucified one, is by virtue of his resurrection, Lord of all creation. I think we should also keep in the back of our minds what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, that not everyone who says to me, Lord, the Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, this is... Here at the very beginning, the difference, I think, is very evident between Paul and the Corinthians. The presence of the Spirit of God in public worship might be seen in the demonstration of gifts and manifestations and power. And so people would say, oh, the Spirit is with us because we see gifts being used. We see a manifestation of the Spirit, the power of the Spirit. And Paul would say, no. How do we know if the Spirit of God is present in public worship? Paul would say there's one thing. That in public worship we confess Jesus is Lord. If we do not confess Jesus is Lord, but look, Damon, we have this person speaking in tongues. And Paul would say, well, you know what? When you guys were pagans, remember, you used to go to temple and there were people speaking in tongues? A demonstration of supernatural power is not proof that the Holy Spirit of God is present. The proof is when you say, Jesus is Lord. Now, with that in mind, Paul now in the rest of the chapter begins to argue that the church needs to have diversity. And he will come at it from different angles. He will prove it from uh, the Trinity. He will use it uh, from the body. But then he will deal with people who say, well, I'm not part of the body. And then others who are saying, no, they're not part of the body. First of all, the need for diversity. The Corinthians apparently have focused on one manifestation of the spirit. That is speaking in tongues. It is the one thing mentioned in all three chapters. The end of chapter 12, beginning of 13, beginning of 14. Paul argues that there needs not simply to be oneness, one demonstration, one manifestation, there needs to be diversity. 
We see this in the Trinity. We see this in the body. And then he makes the application. I think it's really important as we go through this that Paul is trying to correct them when it comes to spiritual gifts, not instruct them. What he's trying to say, there's more than one. They've focused on one. I'm not sure that you're actually a Christian. How am I to be sure that you're a Christian? Oh, but I spoke in tongues. Oh, okay, then you're a Christian. Paul would say, no, there's to be great diversity. Look, if you would, as we read verses 4 through 11. Diversity and the Trinity. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God works all of them in all men. Now, to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one, there is given through the Spirit the message of wisdom. To another, the message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by that one Spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between spirits. To another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. And to still another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit. And he gives them to each one just as he determines. Now Paul gives us the theological context within which to understand what will follow. We have different kinds of gifts. One, the same spirit. Different kinds of service, the same Lord. Different kinds of workings, the same God. The focus here is not the different. The focus is the same. The same Lord, the same spirit, the same God. Parenthesis. We've talked about this before, but in Paul's writings, whenever he says God, he's referring to God the Father. When he says Lord, he's referring to Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he says Spirit, obviously he refers to the Holy Spirit. So here at the very beginning in verse number four, we have a statement about the reality of the Trinity, the Spirit, the Lord, and God the Father. We have one God, we have three persons. Unity, diversity. That which defines creation. When you look at reality, philosophically people, the philosophers speak in terms of unity, Diversity. We have one universe, many, many parts. One body, as Paul will talk about, many parts of the body. But there is a unity and there is a diversity. God is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But we have three persons. We have the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So likewise in the church, which is the body, not bodies, but the body of Christ, unity, there is, in fact, to be incredible diversity. And Paul, in verses 8 through 10, gives examples to illustrate this diversity. Now, what is Paul saying in this particular section? Well, first of all, notice the diversity. Each one, okay, each one is given the manifestation, that is a disclosure of the Spirit's working in that person's life, for the common good. So you have the Spirit giving gifts to each one individually. That's the diversity. But it all goes to one point. It is for the common good. Here Paul will, Paul's anticipating what chapter 13 is about. Certainly what chapter 14 is about. You know, when we come together for public worship, it isn't for us. 
It's for others. It's for the common good, not for me, myself, and I. One of the problems that comes up in this particular passage are the, are the gifts of the Spirit that he mentions here. And everyone's like, well, what does this mean? Um, the message of knowledge, uh, the message of wisdom, uh, gifts of healing. Well, we think we probably know what that is. Miraculous powers, prophecy, distinguishing. What do all these things mean? And if you want to talk about these afterwards, we certainly can. I don't want to delve into it. Um, I would tell you two things. First of all, Paul is not giving us an exhaustive list. Oh, the gifts of the Spirit. Here, let me give you a list. Because in 28 through 30, he will also give us additional material. No. Uh, he simply, I think, the second thing is, he is writing back to them what they have written to him. They have said to Paul, there are all these various gifts. And Paul's like, yes, <laughs> there are these various gifts. And with all these gifts, why are you people focusing on, on this one? We have one God, three persons, one body, many members, one spirit, many gifts. And, and why are you all focusing on this one particular one? Different commentators, when they write about this, categorize these gifts into different categories. Gift of instruction, gift of supernatural power, gift of inspired utterance. Others say intelligible utterance. Power, spiritual discernment, ecstatic utterance, uh, illumination, action, communication. And it's a lot of information, but let me tell you, I think if we're not careful, we miss the forest for the trees. We're looking at the details rather than getting a sense of what Paul is saying. All of these gifts, by the way, are demonstrated gifts. These are visible gifts. These are gifts of supernatural power. I find it really interesting that in this list we don't find serving, encouraging, contributing to the needs of others, showing mercy. This is what Paul writes to the Romans in Romans chapter 12. Uh, the Corinthians aren't interested in that. They want the showy gifts, the flashy ones. That's why Paul mentions them. I don't think Paul is saying, oh, Church on Melrose, hundreds of years later, these are the gifts of the Spirit. Here's an exhaustive list. No, he's writing to the Corinthians and he's saying, and you guys are really after the flashy ones, and still you focus on one, and, and how mistaken that is. Now, verses 12 through 26. Here Paul talks about uni unity and diversity. Well, we saw it in the Trinity. Now we see it in the human body. Uh, Paul first gives the basic analogy. He emphasizes diversity. Then he emphasizes unity. It's, it's a, a tendency when we read this to think that Paul is trying to say, you know, the body is one even though it has many members. I think Paul is saying he's coming at it from a different direction. Yes, there is one body. And we need different members. We need different kinds of members. That's where the Corinthians had gone wrong. Look, if you would, at verses 12 through 14. The body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. 
For we, will, we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Now the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Paul wants to point out what we know already. We all have bodies. Our bodies are made up of different parts. And together they form one body. So it is with Christians and the church. In verse 13, by the Spirit of God we were baptized, we were made to drink, we were given salvation, and now we belong to each other. We belong to the body. Verse number 13 should not surprise us. And I just would remind you of something that we talked about earlier. For Paul, what makes somebody a Christian? What is that distinguishing mark? It's one thing. It's the Spirit. A person who has the Spirit of God is a child of God. So in verse 13, he gives us two different ways of referring to salvation. Baptism, that is being immersed, covered with the Spirit. Drinking, that is having the Spirit inside of us. You just are surrounded by the Spirit of God. This is what happens when we become the people of God. And all of us who have the same Spirit, we belong to one body. And we should really understand that. Now he talks about diversity in verses 15 through 20. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. Here Paul stresses the need for diversity. And I think he is speaking to certain people in the congregation, he's already addressed in chapter 8, the weaker ones, who say, well, you know what? I really, I, I, I can't do certain things in church, therefore I'm, maybe I'm not part of the congregation. It's like the you know, foot saying, since I'm not the hand, I'm not part of the body. Paul says that's ridiculous. You need your foot, you need your hand, you need the organs of, uh, the sensory organs to be able to see, to be able to hear, to be able to smell. If every part of the body was the same, it would be ridiculous. If you were just an eye, just this giant eyeball, well, that wouldn't even work, would it? Because the eye needs to be connected to the brain. And the brain needs to get blood and needs to get oxygen for it to work. So you just can't have this giant eye. You can't have a giant ear, a giant foot. You need all these different parts of the body. And for people in the Corinthian church who somehow feel like, well, Paul, I'm... I don't feel like I'm really part of the body because I don't have certain gifts. Maybe they haven't spoken in tongues. Maybe they've never preached. Maybe they've never prayed in public. And I don't feel like I'm part of the body. And Paul would say, listen, you are. The body's made up of different parts. So first of all, he deals with the people who think they don't belong because they're not like everybody else. Paul says, I don't want you to be like everybody else. Now in verses 21 through 26, he deals with a different problem. 
The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. In the previous section, we have Corinthians saying, eh, I don't think I'm part of the church because I'm not like everybody else. Paul says, don't be like everybody else. Now you have people in the church saying, well, I don't think he belongs in our church because he's not like us. We don't need him. We don't need her. We don't want them to be a part of our church. And Paul says it would be like the hand or the eye saying to the hand, I don't need you. I've got it covered. I can do what I do without you. Or, in fact, the head saying to the feet, I don't need you. In fact, we do need one another. Here, Paul appeals for unity. He argues that the weaker parts of the body are indispensable. Here, I think he's talking about the organs of our body. For example, the brain. Uh, You need a brain. But if you think about it, the brain is this incredibly weak part of the body. If it were not surrounded by the skull, someone, and by skin, someone could simply come up and poke a hole in your brain. The brain is, is just this tissue that is so weak, so fragile. It is so fragile that it needs to be covered by bone. In the same way our lungs, our heart, the various organs here, we need the rib cage. And if we didn't have the rib cage, any type of blow against the body, and, and the, they would be damaged. So the weaker parts, without them, we'd be dead. We absolutely need them. But, you know, on a strength scale, the brain's nothing. You know, the lungs are nothing. I mean, they're, they're so fragile. Yes, they are fragile, and therefore God has protected them in a special way. The analogy can made, be made also for the church. What about the parts that we are less honorable, that we treat with special honor, the parts that are unpresentable, that we present or we treat with special modesty? Uh, People have argued that here Paul is speaking about what we call, in polite terms, the private parts of the body. That we don't want to speak about them in polite society. But you know what? We treat them with special modesty. So for all the private, and we don't want to talk about that, We treat them in a very special way. God made the body in this way. Think about it. If you had arms but you had no bones, I mean, how would things work? You need everything to work together. In the same way, in the church, is everyone going to be the same? No. Do we want everyone to be the same? Absolutely not. God has brought in disparate parts from all parts of society, every level of education, every ethnic background, every socioeconomic status in life, and he puts them together, and these he calls his church. And Paul makes this wonderful statement at the end, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. 
If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Have you ever had a bad toothache? I think toothaches are like the worst pains. And I mean, it's only this, when you think about it in comparison with the rest of your body, it's this tiny little thing. I don't know about you, but if you've got a bad enough toothache, you're not going to function. You cannot function. It's, you've got to take care of it. The body feels the pain. In the same way, the body rejoices when we are in good health. Here, the unity is demonstrated. Now, Paul makes the application in verses 27 through 31. Now, you are the body of Christ. Here, I mean, it's very explicit. You are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And in the church, God has appointed, first of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then workers of miracles, also those having gifts of healing, those able to help others, those with gifts of administration, and those speaking in different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have the gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? But eagerly desire the greater gifts and now I will show you the most excellent way. Here we're ready for what Paul says. The body is, or the church is the body of Christ. It's made up of all different kinds of people. We have an expression, can't be all chiefs and no Indians. Can't be all leaders and no followers. Same way in the church, not everyone's an apostle. Not everyone's a teacher. Not everyone is able to do the things that Paul has talked about here. No, we're all different. It's the way it is. We're the body of Christ. I've thought before, and I've mentioned this to different people. If someone were to say to you, okay, this is sort of strange, but let's say you can set up your own church and we will create a draft system where you can draft the members of your church. What kind of members would you draft? And I think, you know, it's sort of like when you're kids and you're playing basketball or whatever and you, and you, you, you pick teams. You want to pick the stronger ones. You want to pick the best ones. You want to pick the leaders. It's interesting that God didn't do it that way, did he? When God drafted us, if you wish, when God called us into his church, into his family, he didn't say, well, yeah, that person's a little weak. That person's, you know, emotionally, they're just not, uh, they need to mature a little bit. Nah, I'm not going to call them. In fact, God has called people from all throughout society to be his people. Why can't we recognize that? Why didn't the Corinthians recognize that? I think part of it we will see when we get to chapter 14. We'll certainly see it next week in chapter 13. But I, to me, it is the first statement in, chapter thir- or in verse number 31. Because Paul ends this chapter with two puzzling statements. But eagerly desire the greater gifts, and now I will show you the more excellent way. I think that when Paul says eagerly desire the greater gifts, he may, in fact, be repeating back to the Corinthians what they have said. But Paul, we want the big gifts. We want the flashy gifts. And Paul says, let me show you a different way. Let me show you a better way. Let me show you the most excellent way. 
And what he will show them is the way of love. He's not saying, forget gifts, only pursue love. It's not gifts versus love. It's rather, if you have love, then you can exercise the gifts that God has given you the way you're supposed to. The Corinthians are like, we want the, we want the good gifts. We want the great gifts. Get those flashy gifts. And Paul's like, well, there's something even more important than that, and it's love. Because Paul will tell them, you know what, if you do all these amazing things, if you have enough faith to move mountains, and you don't have love, it's nothing. You have the greater gifts, you have no love, it's nothing. What we need to do is to recognize that we are the body of Christ. And we are to have love and affection and care for one another. And the Lord willing, we will see this next week and the weeks following. Let's pray together. Our Father, there's a part of us that, that wants to think that, we, that we're in line with Paul. And yet, culturally, we're, we live in a time when the individual is exalted. We all want to be different, so we will be noticed. And then oftentimes, we simply want to be with people who are like us. Very strange. May we recognize that as your people in this generation... We are the body of Christ. We're not all the same. We're not supposed to be. But we are all to have your spirit. Baptized by him. Being filled by him. That is what makes us brothers and sisters. That is what makes us the family of God. We've covered a lot of material today, and I ask that in the days to come, we would be able to spend some time thinking about it and meditating on it. I ask now that your spirit, your grace would go with us as we leave this place. For those who will be traveling this week, that you would keep them safe. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.